Welcome to This Week in Theater, courtesy of the Broadway Radio Network. I am Broadway star's Jennifer McHugh. And I am Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. This Week in Theater is a bi-weekly podcast talking about regional theater productions around the U.S. This week, we're going to be talking about theaters in West Hartford, Connecticut, Olney, Maryland, and the national tour of Come From Away, as well as others. Matt, how are you? I'm doing great, Jen. It's nice that we are getting to do this. Um, It was a little touch and go there for a minute, but we... Uh, got things scheduled and we are recording and it's very fun to be able to talk about these shows. It is. We're still throwing out feelers around the country to regional theaters who maybe want to give us a shout out, but uh, we're really just here to promote your theaters. So if you'd like us to talk about your production, please contact us and we'll try and set something up. Matt, this week I got to talk to Brittany Griffin from the Playhouse on Park in West Hartford, Connecticut. Brittany is the director and choreographer of their current production, Five Guys Named Mo, which is one of my all-time favorite shows that I've seen. It is running through February 27th. Brittany was a fascinating person to talk to. I found out she's a personal assistant to LaShawn's. She was also a swing in the company of Dreamgirls. So she's a really interesting person, and I think you're going to enjoy our talk. This week, I am talking to Brittany Griffin from Playhouse on Park in West Hartford, Connecticut. Brittany is the director and choreographer of their current production, Five Guys Named Mo. The show runs through February 27th. Brittany, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, Five Guys Named Mo, as most people know, is the music and lyrics written by Lewis Jordan and the book by Clark Peters. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about this production and how you're involved in it? Yes. Um, So I am the choreographer and director of Five Guys Named Mo that is currently playing at the Chaos on Park. Uh, it's there from now through the 27th of February. So everyone has about a week or so to get there and see these amazing, talented guys and all that they do. But um, yeah, I'm a choreographer and director. And the uh, show is uh, basically, it takes place um, in present day. But what happens is... Uh, the character, Nomax, he basically comes home from a late night of drinking and he uh, has uh, an argument with his girlfriend and his girlfriend breaks up with him and she um, breaks his heart and he goes home and he's depressed and he's sad and he's drinking and he's all the things and he turns on his radio and when he turns his radio on, he's listening to um, an old jazz station and out Pops these five guys named Mo, and they uh, basically are there to get him together and school him and help him become a better man and a better boyfriend and win his girlfriend Lorraine. So that's essentially um, what the show is about, and it's a uh, pretty much like a, a jukebox musical. It's like song after song after song does have like a a short you know a small storyline through it but it's mostly like a jukebox musical um with the songs of louis jordan for those who aren't familiar with the musical these are some old standards that are performed by the guys named mo like you said it had to have been a huge undertaking with the choreography i know that some of these numbers are real real intricate as well as um my personal favorite is you is or is you ain't my baby when they literally just stand there and belt it out and blow everyone's mind. So can you tell us a little bit about your process in not only choreographing, but directing these guys and making this the show stopping show that it is? Yes. Um, and I love that you said that was your favorite number because, you know, oftentimes in a musical, it's constant movement and jumping and dancing and singing and so much going on. Uh, and it was important to me that in that moment um, we, that we took the time to just let them be and to just sing and to be still. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I love that. That was your favorite part of the show. Um, but yeah, it, it's a small cast. You know, there's only six guys in the cast. But I think people often think, oh, it's a small cast. So like, it can't be that much work. 
Uh, I personally think when you're dealing with this kind of show that's a jukebox musical where there is a small through line, it's harder to make it work because you don't have an elaborate set. You don't have all of this dialogue and, you know, uh, a big story going through. Uh, it's very much how can you make these six men and these X amount of songs make sense in this short amount of time. Um, so it was definitely a big undertaking. This is my first time directing and choreographing a show. Uh, I've definitely choreographed a few things and I've been on the associate side many times, but this is my first time doing both at once. Uh, so I definitely had a great team at Playhouse on Park. Uh, my associate, Darius Barnes, is amazing and um, was just, we worked really well together on figuring out how to, it was a balance of trying to make the show exciting without exhausting the guys because it's such a song heavy show. You can't have, you know, five guys jumping around and, and dancing and kicking their face the entire time when uh, they're also trying to sing these amazing songs, you know? So there was definitely, uh, we did a lot of work of trying to find a balance of playing and dancing and moving and excitement along with keeping them still enough for long enough so that they could breathe and, and get through all of the choreography. I'm so glad you said that because I know that the music really is the star of this show. And especially in the number that we were discussing, I mean, it's perf it's six part harmony perfection and just having them stand there and it gives you chills to watch them climax in this amazing six part harmony and you're right that sometimes it's over choreographed, but finding a balance just for stamina <laughs> is important. Um, you had to have faced some challenges, you know, staging this in the middle of a pandemic and working with a, a small cast. Do you want to talk about some of the challenges that you had to face? Yeah, definitely. Um, again, like I said, this was my first time choreographing and directing. So that has its challenges on its own. But then on top of that, we were in the middle of a pandemic. And we started rehearsals uh, January 4th, so right after the new year. And I don't know if everyone remembers, but during that time, especially here in New York City, uh, because that's where most of us came from, most of the actors uh, you know, were based here, uh, equity rules say that you have to have a PCR test X amount of hours before you begin your first rehearsal, which in normal times during the pandemic wouldn't be bad. But because it was right after the holidays, you had tourists, you had families traveling. So every place we went to, PCRs were backed up for weeks. I mean, it usually takes, if you go to a city MD, you can get a PCR result in three days. Well, what happened was we ended up taking our PCRs and then we all showed up to Connecticut, you know, to rehearse. But all of our PCR tests did not come in, including mine, because everything was so backlogged. I mean, it was probably six or seven day turnaround. Um, so that really put us at a disadvantage in that, you know, when you start a show the first day and you have a meet and greet and you sit down with the cast, it's in person. So this was online. It was so different. You know, everything was on Zoom. Um, we even did some of our music rehearsals on Zoom, um, which is very hard because as you know, all of us, you know, who have become Zoom pros in this pandemic, you can't have multiple people speaking at once because you can't hear them. So when you're working on harmonies and music, they never, uh, to be fully honest, they had, I believe, three rehearsals in person where they actually sang their harmonies together. All of the other rehearsals were done on Zoom because that was the only time that we could fit it all in uh, with tight schedule. So it was, it was actually terrifying, I'm not going to lie, um, but there was never a doubt in my mind that we couldn't get it done. Um, the group of guys were just, they're amazing. They're hard workers. They were always like up for it. They were like, we got to do what we got to do. Let's figure it out. Let's, if we got to Zoom, we Zoom. Um, and so they were really great. And, uh, but yeah, the pandemic was really, it, it, it really threw us for a loop and making sure that everyone was safe. Playhouse on Park did a great job with that. Um, you know, we tested every three days, I think it was, once we all got our PCRs back and we were all in the space together, uh, we would take rapid tests every morning before we would arrive at the theater. 
It would give us stuff to take at home. We would send them, you know, a picture of it to our stage manager, and then we were safe to come in. Uh, and anyone who was not an actor had to be masked. So myself and the entire creative team, if we were in the room, when we were in the room, we had to be fully masked, which is also a challenge. Um, I'm not a spring chicken. So having to, to dance and teach with a mask on all day is crazy. Um, and so Playhouse and Park really did a great job of making sure that, you know, we were super safe and safety was first. Uh, and also the guys were great, you know, typically when you are bonding like this and this kind of experience it, uh, and, uh, we were all staying in the same apartment, you know, everyone goes out on the weekends and, you know, has fun and, and lets their hair loose. And I kind of was very clear. I was like, guys, like our focus here is to make sure that we actually get to put on the show safely and that no one comes down with COVID as much as we can control it. So that means, you know, like if you want to have fun, you do it in your room. If you want to have wine. Don't go to the bar, bring it to, you know, go buy it and bring it to the room. Um, so the guys really um, were great about that. Just making sure we were doing everything we could to make sure that that safety was first and that we all stayed healthy. Wow. That is a definition of true professionals that they can come in and, and um, perform those harmonies with only a few rehearsals. Now, because of those threats, do you have understudies because it's such a sick, a tight six part group or is it just hope for the best? Yeah. So originally we did not have a swing. Um, and I think it was probably like two weeks before I was like, Hey, you know, I reached out to everyone at Playhouse on Park and I said, Hey, like I get it. Um, things are tight, but my fear is that if one person goes down, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in trouble. So we hired a swing. Um, he was a local um, and he's great. And he, you know, actually he's going on this weekend. Um, he's going on on Saturday. But yeah, he, um, he covers all the tracks. So he has to learn and know all five tracks or all six tracks in the event that someone is sick or someone is out. Um, we have a guy that has a prior commitment. So he will be out and so he'll be covering him, um, which gives us a little bit of relief. But it still is. You know, in a three-week process, uh, you know, where a show's going up for three and a half weeks or so, uh, you don't always need that. But with COVID, we were like, you know, let's be safe. And, and yeah, he's with us as a swing, and he's been great. Swings out here doing the Lord's work every time. <laughs> yeah, always. <laughs> and, it's, and it's funny, I was a swing, um, funny connection, but I, years ago, was on the Broadway National Tour of Dreamgirls, and the guy who played our Marty, he was in the original Five Guys Named Mo on Broadway. His name is Milton Craig Neely. And he and his husband, Doug Askew, uh, they were both in the original cast. Milton was Four-Eyed Mo and Doug was Big Mo. And um, yeah, I did Dream Girls with Milton. So when I booked this, I called immediately and I was like, I need your help. I need your wisdom, your knowledge, any backstories, anything you can share. Um, was great. But yeah, when I was on Dream Girls, I was to swing. And uh, it is a hard, hard job. I don't think many people realize it's it's crazy because of the swing. Yes, you have time to learn everything off stage or in rehearsals or on the side. But it's one thing to learn everything on the side, but then to be thrown into it. Um, it's just completely different. It's like, it's it's hard to explain as prepared as you think you are. Everything is so different when you're actually finally on your feet and in the show. And you, I think people also forget the, you know, the, the cast members who are in the show are there every night. So they're warmed up. They're comfortable. They're in it. They're, they've got the routine down. And then you throw someone in who is doing this track for the very first time. Uh, and it's a whole different ballgame. So I have so much respect for Swings. Um, as a former swing, it is a hard job. And so um, I'm always so grateful to them because it's, they take on a lot. And a thankless job. I mean, they're learning tracks that they'll probably never perform. Exactly. That's also, yeah, it, it's also kind of like a, a thing where you say, okay, which tracks do you think we might, you know, sometimes you might pay more attention to a track that has heavier vocals just in case, you know, that person vocally is out one day or comes down with you know a cold boom your your focus is on them or um but yeah it's definitely 
a thankless job where you end up learning everyone. And you may, I mean, there are swings who have never gone on before in shows. There are swings who have gone on for weeks at a time. Um, so you just never know, but you're, you're always prepared. In the show itself, was there a particular number that you either um, really struggled with or it, it took a lot of work, but you're really, really, really proud of the way it turned out and you look forward to seeing it any night? Yes, that's such a good question. Uh, so there's a number um, toward the end of Act One. Um, it's called Safe, Sane, and Single. And originally, this song is has very much of like a country, western, honky-tonk undertone to it. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big research girl, and I love to keep things classic. Um, I'm very much like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh-huh. And I struggled with the number because I just didn't, the the country western feel didn't resonate with me. It was just so different, even though it's it you know it was originally written and done by Louis Jordan. It didn't have it didn't it didn't feel the way that I, I wasn't resonating with me. I was like, well, what do I do with this? And I had looked at how other people had done it in the past, um, and I was just like, this I want to do something different. I don't know what. Um, and so I actually called on a mentor of mine. His name is Ted Levy. He is a Broadway veteran and. He was in Jelly's Last Jam and Black and Blue, and um, he has taught some of the best and was Gregory Hines' right man and has taught Savion and, and all the amazing tap dancers and hoofers um, of today. But he's a very close friend of mine, and he is also like a, a history buff. If you call him and you're like, what's the origin of this? He's like, give me five minutes. And he's like, look at this YouTube clip. So he and I um, really talked this out and we talked about, you know, a lot of, if you really listen to the song, it also has gospel undertones. And that resonated with me um, growing up in a Baptist church. I was like, okay, I, I like that. I want to go there with it. And so we kept the honky tonk feel during the verse, but during the chorus, we gave it a gospel feel. And um, we took it like full out there. The band was amazing because they essentially took this song and recreated it. Um, they played notes that were not there, that have never been there. So um, our music director, uh, Dexter Petaway, and our associate music director, uh, Darren Lorenzo, who was also Big Mo, they got together and I, I told them what I wanted and they were like, okay, you want a gospel film? Got it. And it was really, it was probably one of the, I, one of the proudest moments and most exciting moments I had. We were in, it was the first time we had actually had the band because I don't know if people know, a lot of times in a process like this, you don't get to have the band the whole time in rehearsal. You'll have the pianist and you'll have a drummer. Um, and then a couple of other musicians will trickle in as they can. But um, due to union rules and all other kinds of things, we didn't have the band the whole time with us. So the very first time we had the band with us was probably a week before we were going to be on stage. And they played it for me. And the guys heard it for the first time and I heard it. And I was fighting tears because it was so cool to, you know, you have an idea a lot of times as a creative, you don't always get to make those ideas come to life. But to have an idea and to have so many hands involved in it and for it to come alive and it, for it to be better than what you envisioned is, it was, I, it's like, I can't really explain how it felt, but it was just, I freaked out in that room. I was screaming. I was like, oh my gosh, it was really, really cool. Um, and so, you know, also as like a tribute in the theater, you know, the space is basically built the set is basically built to look like Nomax's home and, and Nomax is an old soul, you know, although it takes place in present time, he is an old soul and everything around him is vintage. So he has that vintage radio and some of his photos are, you know, of people that he admires, of his family and so on. And so um, not only do we have pictures of um, Marcus Canada's family who plays Nomax, but I also have some photos of my family, um, Louis Jordan, and my inspirations. And I also have Ted up there because I just, I couldn't thank him enough whenever I would get stuck and I just couldn't come up with something that I really loved. I would call Ted and he, he came through. So um, it was, it was really special to 
to take something and, and keep it as it was, but add our own twist to it. But it also still respected Louis Jordan and um, the origins of his music. And anyone who's done musicals knows that when the band comes in, it's like a whole new show. And the energy that comes out, all of a sudden, you're just watching something that's like, oh, here, we have a show. So that must have been an amazing moment. That is exactly, that was the moment when I was like, oh, we have a show. And you said it, you said it perfectly because, you know, you put numbers together and as you're piecing it together, it's just number after number after number. And in between every number with this show, it's a small scene, you know, a very small scene, maybe a few lines that basically lead everyone into the next song. And so you really don't know what it's going to be like until you start piecing it all together. So being able to, to have that moment and see that it was, it, it, it was like a sigh of relief. I was like, okay, this is, this is, I think this is going to be good. I think we're in good shape. It's just such a great show. It, it, you can't leave the theater without a smile on your face. That music is just so good. Um, this show runs through the 27th at Playhouse on Park. And Brittany, what's up next for you? What is up next for me? I am back in the city. Um, I am working on all kinds of things. I wear many hats. Um, I am um, a part-time personal assistant to Broadway veteran LaShawn's. And she actually came up to see the show the other night uh, with her friend, George Faison, who's also uh, become a mentor of mine. The two of them came up and saw the guys. Uh, we went Wednesday night um, with some of their friends as well. It was amazing. So I assist her and um, I teach um, through a arts program here um, in New York. So I teach virtually twice a week. And then I'm working on some other projects as well um, on the choreography side and associate side. So just doing all the things I can creatively while I can. That sounds fantastic. I can't thank you enough for giving us your time today. Um, I encourage everyone to go see this show. I, I've never left a theater happier than when I've seen this show. Playhouse on Park can be found on Instagram at Playhouse on Park and on TikTok at Playhouse on Park 4. I guess there was three other Playhouse on Parks. Their theater website is playhouseonpark.org. And like I said, it's running through the 27th if anyone's in the West Hartford area of Connecticut. It's a great show. Matt, why don't you tell us about who you talked to this week? Yeah, so at the Olney Theater Center in suburban Baltimore, theater goers have the opportunity to see the world premiere of a truly unique new musical by some of the most successful writers on stage and screen. The new show, AD 16, centers on a teenaged Mary Magdalene, played by Dear Evan Hansen alum Phoenix Best, and this version of Mary has a crush on her next door neighbor, obviously. Jesus, played by Newsies star Ben Fankhauser. The musical features a book by Becca Brunstetter, who is a playwright and producer who served as the supervising producer on NBC's This Is Us, and as the co-executive producer for Netflix's Made, a miniseries that uh, got a lot of critical acclaim last year. And her plays, including Oregon Trail and Cake, are performed around the country. In fact, Jen, her play uh, Miss Lily Gets Boned had its West Coast premiere in 2019 at your theatrical home, Rogue Machine. She is also currently writing the musical adaptation of The Notebook with singer-songwriter Ingrid Michaelson. Now, Becca wrote the show with my guest on today's episode, Cinco Paul. As a screenwriter, he is known for co-writing the screenplays for the Despicable Me movie franchise, the animated Horton Hears a Who in Lorax Dr. Seuss films, as well as being the creator, writer, and composer for last summer's musical comedy hit, Schmigadoon. In our conversation, we discuss writing a musical comedy based on a somewhat silly premise, why he happily defines his projects as feel-good, how his own personal faith impacted the writing of this show, and what the future has in store for AD16 and for Schmigadoon. So one of my favorite things about musical theater is that to me, the best shows often tend to be the ones that come from like 
the goofiest or most off the wall premises. And when I first saw the press release for 8016, before I even realized that you and Becca, two people who I have a ton of respect for, were writing it, like I knew this was the type of show that would excite me as a musical theater goer. As a writer, how did this premise kind of latch you in uh, to be this is the story that you wanted to tell? Yeah, I had been really wanting to write a new musical, and I, I've always been very interested in, fascinated with famous people when they were younger, you know, has always really interested me and and them not knowing who they were going to be yet. And so I started to focus on Jesus as a teenager, but I really wanted to do a story with a female protagonist at the center. And so that led me to, well, someone maybe would have a crush on Jesus, at that time. And then I thought of Mary Magdalene. And that was really, and then once I had that idea, I thought, oh, this feels like a good idea. And so then I sat down at the piano to try to write a song. And I wrote this song called Perfect, which Mary sings when she first meets Jesus and falls for him. And, and that's really when I knew that, that I, I felt that it could work, you know, that this could be a fun show. <laughs> despite the crazy premise. Yeah, but, the, the, you know, I, I feel like the if you look at the shows throughout musical theater history, the ones that do feel like, oh, that'll never work, a, a musical about a Victorian barber who murders people and a pie owner who, you know, turns them into cannibal meat pies, that'll never work. But, like, Sweeney Todd is what it is because of the execution. When you sat down to write that song and you think, okay, this story is a little kooky, how do you find the balance of making this weird idea a show that is viable based off of your approach and, and how you and Becca kind of collaborated on making it with the tone and the focus that it has? Well, I think in the first place, you know, you treat every all the characters as real, you know, and their emotions as real. And so at the heart of it, you know, it's it's a young woman who has a crush, but has a lot to learn about love. And so, you know, you rooted in something relatable. I think that always helps. But other than that, I think Becca feels the same way. We both just write the shows that we would want to see and that we would want to go to. By the way, Sweeney Todd is my favorite musical of all time. Perfect. So it's interesting yes. you mentioned that. Although, you know, not a lot of similarities between Sweeney Todd and Katie <laughs> um, But yeah, you just write the show that you want to see and you hope that other people will, you know, like it too, right? And want to see it too. You mentioned the fact, like, despite the heightened premise of 8016, like, it is a fairly universal story of having a crush on somebody who doesn't, or in, in this case, probably can't reciprocate those feelings. When you look at the story of, of Mary Magdalene in this incarnation of her story, which is something that, you know, from the, you know, I'm a, a, a Catholic school educated uh, person. So I know that like, there's nothing really that much in the Bible about Mary Magdalene. And there's some disputes as to who Mary Magdalene really was, depending on which, uh, which book you're reading. But like, from the colloquial, you know, entertainment side of things, we still don't know much about her or even Jesus for that matter from the Bible during this time period. When you start crafting these characters, how much does your storyteller side lean into like that universality of somebody having a crush and it not being reciprocated in the way they would like balance with your personal faith and trying to um, relate it back to the lessons that will eventually come out of these people's lives in the Bible, even if we don't really know a whole lot about them at the time that you're focusing on. Yeah. I mean, that was one thing where I felt like, oh, we've got kind of a the freedom to explore this because there's nothing in the Bible about Jesus between ages 12 and 30. So it's a blank slate. So, so that to me, gave us the freedom. And obviously, we know very little about Mary Magdalene other than she was like a follower, a disciple, and mm -hmm. and she had seven demons cast out of her. That's all we know. <laughs> and, and so, and and that obviously she was important to Jesus later in life, right? And and um so so because of that, had the freedom to explore. And and as Beck and I are both 
people of faith, but with senses of humor, you know, we didn't want to do a show that would was attacking anyone's beliefs or would make people feel, you know, feel like uh, their religion was was under attack. That was not the purpose, but it's also not to proselyte. You know, it was just to sort of explore like the real story between these two teenagers during a time when when life was tough for both of them, but very much so for a young woman, right? And so we kind of placed it in that context and just let them be themselves, you know? And, and ultimately what we, we landed on was a story about, it's a coming of age story about a young girl learning, getting a more profound understanding of what love really means. Yeah, and that is a story that, has so many different applications in life, whether it is the type of love that she's talking about in this or even the faith religious love. I mean, that is uh, at the center of all of the stories, uh, you know, of faith where, you know, a love of a different kind is really pushing that forward. And, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. And you, you, I've seen some of the videos of you and Becca talking about um, how your faiths have influenced this story. How how do you you know, fold that in with, with a story that is about faith, but essentially not about faith. Uh, how do you kind of balance your own personal experiences with religion, um, with, uh, you know, the writing of a story that you're hoping will appeal to people, whether they are a believers or not? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's all about love. That's what it's always about and what it comes down to, whether it's in Despicable Me, the, the power of love to turn a bad guy into a good guy, or um, Schmigadoon, you know, which is also all about love. And so that's what this is about. And, and obviously, the lessons that Jesus taught that you find in the New Testament about love are really profound. And, and I think there's something that everyone can embrace, right? The idea of loving your neighbor. Uh, loving the people that you consider outsiders or loving the people that you may even consider your enemies, those sort of lessons were the ones that really resonate with both me and Becca as far as our religion's concerned. And so that's what we explored. And we also explored the ways that that back in those days and still weapon uh, uh, religion is weaponized in a way, in a way that I don't think was ever the intention and and is is used as a way to to you know to to punish people or to make people feel less than which is the opposite of i think what it's intended so i think we've layered all those sort of things into this show as well there's a lot about loving your neighbor in this yeah you you mentioned the love in schmigadoon and there's some overlap in the styles of that show. And from what I understand about AD 16 as well, because there is a variety of musical styles in Schmigadoon, which we all obviously saw in musical theaters uh, devoured. Um, and from going through the press clips and, and hearing you talk about this show, there's a, a fairly wide variety in terms of the musical palette of AD 16 as well. If people are coming into a show set, obviously in the year 16, we don't know what that music sounded like, but what is the palette that they're going to be exposed to if they go see it at the Olney? Yeah. You know, when I sat down at the piano to write that first song, I wrote an R&B song and it felt, and it's very much rooted in 80s and 90s R&B, which I think is because I love that so much. Mm -hmm. This is the era of En Vogue and TLC and Prince and Tony, Tony, Tony oh, yeah. and... Tony, Tony, and, Tony, by the way, was a, was at the first concert that I ever saw in my entire life. Tony, 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 Belle Biv DeVoe, CNC Music Factory. It was the MTV <laughs> dance party tour when I was way too young to be there. But I appreciate the Tony, Tony, Tony reference, though. Yeah, I'm very jealous. <laughs> I, uh, I've always been a, a huge Tony, Tony, Tony fan. And so for some reason, I, th I thought, you know, because it's set in olden days, as we would say, it, I thought it, it was fun to contemporize that with a style of music that feels more modern and hip and cool. And so that I just gravitated to that type of music. So and also, I think because of the gospel roots of R&B, it sort of felt right to me you know sure, it's yeah. it's sung in that way and so it's a wide variety of r&b but it is 
very 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, there's there's some 70s like Funkadelic and Denise Williams layered in there. There's a little bit of Motown. Um, it's 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 all there, and it's sort of all centered that way thematically, but it is all over the map within that genre. And to be able to kind of handle the the variety of music, even if it does have that same theme, you have to have a pretty excellent cast. And even for folks who uh, are more Broadway centric, like there's a number of people in this cast that are known to be just absolutely dynamic voices from uh, obviously Phoenix Best playing Mary and Ben Fankhauser as Jesus. Alan H. Green is in there uh, as well. Talk about the cast and not only just saying, hey, here's our show, sing the score, but developing a new work and being able to tailor the songs that you are writing to the specific voices and types and and skill sets of the people who are inhabiting these characters on stage for the first time ever. Yeah, I think the first time I heard Phoenix sing one of my songs, I got emotional. I teared up because it's sort of. It's it's the greatest gift a composer can get is an artist of that level. And and she does a beautiful job with all the songs. She's also hilarious and so likable on stage, but she has a killer voice and she really understands how to deliver a song. And then Ben Fankhauser, who plays our Jesus, has has been involved with the show for several years. He actually recorded our demos. So he is someone He's the perfect, like this, this kind of awkward Jewish boy who sings like an R&B God, you know, he's perfect as our Jesus. And so I I definitely did gear some of the songs toward him or also said, Ben, do your thing, you know, uh, riff the heck out of this one and, and have fun with it. And so also, you know, we have Alan H. Green who plays Mary's dad and I reworked a song for him because the way he was singing it was so much better than the way I'd written it, <laughs> you know, so much more soulful and expressive. And so I said, Oh, it needs to, it needs to sing like this. And so I need to to do some work to, to, to make that, that uh, fit better with, with uh, the way Alan wants is feeling it should be performed. So, so we've been truly blessed with an incredible cast. I, 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 I can't wait for people to 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 see the show and see these. They're they're all stars in in the making, or you know they are they've already had amazing careers, of course. In your writing career, how I mean, obviously, it's very different to be able to tailor a song in the process to fit Alan H. Green's voice compared to um, you know writing a screenplay, or in the fact of of Schmigadoon, you are writing songs that are going to be recorded before they're filmed and all of that stuff. How do, how do you balance the ability to, uh, you know, having to write stuff ahead of time and have something set and in stone because there are so many moving parts when it's on screen, as opposed to being able to be in the room, um, for a mo- for an actual onstage musical, obviously there's collaboration in those, you know, on screen stuff as well. But, uh, I, I assume from a writer's standpoint, it's a much different degree in terms of the hand hands-on interaction that you have with the artist performing the work when it's on stage as opposed to TV or movies. Yeah, I mean, definitely one of the greatest things has been this the six weeks of rehearsals we had for this show. It was the, the best thing for the show because, you know, we've been able to only do these 29-hour workshops and you barely have time to teach everybody the music you know, let alone play around with things. And and you learn things from those table reads and those workshops, but it's nothing like this rehearsal process, which I really learned a lot about the show. And, and, and it is so amazing to have weeks with these uh, performers in the room to really hone in on the songs and fix things and change them. And, um, you know, I had some of that with Schmigadoon and also, you know, I'm writing for Kristen Chenoweth and Jane Krakowski. And, you know, when yeah. you're when when you know that's who you're writing for, that's also a great gift. It's like, oh, I can do whatever I want and they'll be up to the challenge, you know. And um, but this was a great process to have. It was really a luxury for the first time in the history of our working on the show to have the time to really hone in on things with the cast. And during that uh, that six weeks of rehearsal, what was what are some of the things that you learned about the show? I assume having 
uh, director Stephen Brackett be able to help kind of get it on its feet. And, and I think he's been involved with the process even before this. But uh, to work with him and with Becca and everybody at the Olney, um, what did you learn about this that you hadn't considered or hadn't thought about uh, before you dove into that month and a half? Well, that's a that's a tough question because it, it was so much and it's it's but it's kind of hard to put into words. But I will say that that Stephen is great at sort of looking at the overall picture. And 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 he asked a lot of hard questions of me and Becca about things, you know, that, that we had to really dig down and come up with answers. But it is but it is a lot about, you know, your main character's journey about Mary's journey and how to best present that and in the most clear and and emotionally truthful way possible. So we learned a lot about that. I'm sorry, I'm speaking really generally. No, 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 that's perfect. <laughs> but um, but that was a lot of it. And also sort of realizing, you know, when a song has overstayed its welcome <laughs> and um and when it's and when it's time for a song, you know, and and that those really became clarified, you know, during the rehearsal process. I, I prefer short songs. Um you know, I don't like them to overstay their welcome. So there, I definitely learned a lot about that during the process. That's good. I, I would, I was going to ask, like, as a composer, is it hard for somebody to say, yeah, this needs a minute cut off of its runtime, but it sounds like that's actually music, no pun intended, to your ears. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I prefer them shorter. I'm always asking Stephen, is this too long? Is this too long? You know, and, and, and he'll say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's fine. But then sometimes then when it's actually on its feet, you realize, okay, yeah, maybe maybe we need to take a verse out of this. I love that. Well, it's so much of your work, and you mentioned some of the things, I, I think it's fair to describe, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I feel it's fair to describe a lot of what you've done as feel-good stuff, even if they've got like, I don't know, like the subtlest little bits of subversion underneath and whether that's despicable me with, you know, the humor uh, in there. And even I, you know, even the Dr. Seuss stuff that you've done, I feel like there's a little bit of subversion built in to Dr. Seuss's source material as well. And Schmigadoon always had that kind of uh, little bit of an edge to it as well. Do you see AD 16 kind of fitting in with the vibes of a lot of the work that you're well known for on screen as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, your characterization of my work is spot on. <laughs> I mean, okay, it's, it's feel good. It's hopeful. It's optimistic. That's kind of my way of looking at life. And so that definitely, um, you know, spills over into everything that I create. But also, you know, I do like things that have a little bit of an edge or something to say or, you know, to, to poke fun at musicals like Schmigadoon does. Or some of the things that are backwards, and and uh, is always really fun and interesting to me. Makes that something uh, gives everything a, a, another level. And I think what Beck and I have done in AD sixteen is similar. It's very hopeful. It's optimistic. Um, it's about loving your neighbor, but it's also <laughs> sort of a dissection of like the patriarchal order of that time, you know, and and the way women and outsiders like lepers were treated. So it's kind of a critique of that. And also saying like, how far really have we come? Um, and it is part of it as well. So there's always that level layered in, but, but generally it's to make you feel at the end, like I want to be a better person. And that made me feel really good. And I want to continue that feeling. Yeah. You know, you and uh, Becca, I saw one of the videos that the only put out where you both, I mean, seemingly in jest said that this is the show that the world needs right now. And obviously you were being hyperbolic and playing around with that. But like the idea of loving your neighbor and looking at the way we treat people, uh, especially women, like those are very timely topics. So, I mean, I, even if you were kidding, like I feel like there was at least a little bit of truth in and how you view the importance of the messages that this show contains. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we joked about it because you never want to be <laughs> sort of promoting yourself of as like, I'm the, I'm the, we're the answer. Yeah, we're going to save the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to save the world with this musical, but you know, that being said, you're right. You know, you, I feel like as an artist and maybe this is a little high fluting, but you have a responsibility, right. To, to do what you can to, to make change or make the world a better place, even in your little, you know, animated movies you make or 
musicals, you know, that's, that's part of the responsibility. So we do feel that. I mean, primarily the goal is always entertainment for me. And I think for Becca as well, but, but you're given an opportunity to sort of, to, to, to say something. And, and so I think it behooves you to say it. So if people are going to come to to the only through March 6th, which is when the show is uh, running for, at least for now, unless you decide to do an extension of some sort, what do you think the they should be taking away from this? You said you want them to leave feeling good, but is there something, um, a, a message, whether it is about themselves, about the way that they interact with others, about the world that you hope they're able to take away from Mary's story in, in, in this show? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously we want them to, to laugh and, you know, and, and feel things and, and, you know, bob their head to the music and all that sort of stuff. But also in there, I think there is a message about loving your neighbor and that everyone is deserving of love and and that that really love is the way to make the world a better place. Boy, as I'm saying it, it just sounds so <laughs> corny, doesn't it? It's so corny. It's so corny to, to, to say it out loud like that. But 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 that's true. I mean, that's truly how I feel and how I try to live my life. And I know Becca feels the same way. And so that's that's what the message is. It's sort of the message of the Good Samaritan. It's like, don't cross to the other side of the road when you see someone in pain or see someone in need of help. Cross the road and, and lift them up any way you can. And I think that's ultimately what we'd love for people to to leave the theater feeling like, maybe maybe I could be better in this way. Maybe maybe there's people that I need to reach out to that I've turned away from. And and that, I think, is ultimately what we hope the takeaway is. I, lo- I love that. And I, I do feel like that this is the show that will save the entire world because of that <laughs> message. So, um, uh, OK, so I will wrap this up by asking a couple questions that I have a feeling you may not be able to answer, which is totally fine. But I'm going to ask them anyway. Ask away. OK, so first, AD 16, I say again, running through March has some you know, some good Broadway names at the lead. You and uh, Becca are both at the top of your fields uh, on screen and now on stage as well. Becca's, you know, a playwright of some renown as well. Um, Do you know what the next step for this show is? Do you have an idea, even if you don't have any concrete plans of what you would like the next step for this show to be? Um, Is there a next step for this show? Uh, I guess is another question that could be part of that as well. Well, my dream for this show from the very beginning has always been Broadway. And I think that's still the dream. You know, we've been getting some great reviews here. We got a great one from Peter Marks in the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. And and um, I feel like this show can and should go to Broadway. And and Stephen Brack was like, don't say that. You can't say that, Cinco. <laughs> don't jinx it. But, but that's the way I feel. So that's my intention. And we're hoping that people will come to see the show who can help make that possible. And I know a bunch are. And so I've, you know, fingers crossed, prayers up. We'll see what happens. I love I, I love the fact that you're willing to put that out there in the world when most writers won't even broach that subject. That says a lot about you, Cinco. I really appreciate that. <laughs> okay. um, and I'll, I guess I'll spin that forward. You talked about the fact that Sweeney Todd is your favorite show. Uh, could there be a a second Schmigadoon episode centered on or a season centered on Sondheim music, especially now after his passing? I feel like I, the musical theater fans would eat that up. I, again, no Sweeney Todd pun intended. <laughs> um, an inadvertent uh, cannibalism yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. reference. Yeah. Um, no, my uh, I've always conceived of Schmigadoon as more than one season, and it's my hope that that will happen. But there's nothing else I can say right now. Fair about enough. Yeah, that is more of the type of answer I thought I'd get on the first question. Um, so I I respect that and appreciate it. But uh, well, I've got a massive corporation, you know. Following yeah. me, uh, I'm yeah. so I have to be more careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those those big studios, uh, they know everything, and especially with Apple, because especially if you've got any Apple products, they're probably listening every time you yeah, talk. I'm doing to this somebody. on my MacBook Pro. Yeah, <laughs> they're listening to everything. 
Yeah, they are literally listening right now and copying everything down. Well, I, I'm thrilled about this show's success, and I, I cannot wait to hear about what the next step is. And uh, as theater fans, we love to see uh, you know the crossover here for, for you getting more and more entrenched in the musical theater world after so many years of success uh, on screen. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. And uh, hopefully when this show makes it to Broadway, we can uh, have a chance to talk about it again. I'd love that. Thanks so much, Matt. AD 16 runs at the Olney Theater Center through Sunday, March 6th. We will have information in the show notes and on BroadwayRadio.com as to how you can get tickets and follow Cinco on social media. I actually did a show with Becca um, oh, did a couple you? years ago. Yes, it was her production of Be a Good Little Widow at a theater that no longer exists, unfortunately. But she has a a big selection of works. So I think she's one of those up and coming playwrights that everybody's going to know in a couple years. Yeah, I have a ton of uh, her scripts. Like I have like three or four of her scripts uh, and they're all fantastic. She first became known to me because of her production of Cake that I think was staged at MTC a few years ago. Uh, But you see her name popping up in everything, both in terms of theater both in New York and around the country. And then she's like kind of attached with a bunch of like really interesting uh, television projects as well. So excited. I haven't watched Made yet, but it's on my list and obviously excited uh, for the musical adaptation of The Notebook, which I believe will be having its world premiere in Chicago this fall. So obviously we'll be talking about that when it rolls around. Okay, so Matt, you recently paid a visit to your, is it hometown? It is. Columbus, Ohio? It is. Your hometown for the first time in how many years? Oh, way too many. Way, way, way too many. (laughs) And while you were there, you got to see one of both of our favorite shows come from away, and you got to experience it with some of your family. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, as listeners might know from today on Broadway and my New York trip daily travel logs, after I spent a week in New York earlier this month, I flew from New York to my hometown of Columbus, Ohio. And the main reason was really for me to see my grandmother and to take her to see the national tour of Come From Away at the historic Ohio Theater in downtown Columbus. My cousin Maggie, who lives in Dayton, also drove over to accompany us, but since uh, we did not get her a ticket originally. She, she was a few rows back. So sorry about that, but she actually had a better view. So sorry, not sorry. Even though I had been into plays and musicals as a child, it was a direct two-step process in seventh grade when first my curiosity and then lifelong obsession with theater really took hold. Step one was because I went to a private Catholic school, we were able to really put everything on hold and do whatever we wanted for two weeks as a lovely woman named Mrs. Readover came in and taught us all about Shakespeare the entire day for two full weeks. Everything from the plays to the sonnets, to dialogue, to projection, to costumes, to history and more. And it culminated in a performance of scenes, monologues, and more that was open to our family. Needless to say, by the time those two weeks were over, 12-year-old me was starting to catch the bug, and my arts-loving grandparents paid particular attention to that. So a few weeks later, in October of 1993, they took me to the Ohio Theater to see the pre-Broadway national tour of My Fair Lady, starring Richard Chamberlain as Professor Henry Higgins and Melissa Errico as Eliza Doolittle. Now, because my grandparents had been season subscribers for many years, they had three seats, three rows back, on the house left side of the aisle between their section and the center orchestra section. My grandfather always said that he wanted to be close enough not only to see every expression on the actors' faces, but also because he knew how hard they were working to entertain the audience, that he wanted to see... Uh, all of that effort and sweat on their faces uh, to truly appreciate that. From that day on at the Ohio Theater, I was thoroughly and irrevocably obsessed with theater and specifically musical theater. 
So fast forward nearly 28 and a half years, and again, I walked into the Ohio Theater with my grandmother to sit in the house left section to see a beloved musical. The only differences were that my grandfather had passed away in 2008, and that this time we were in the fourth row rather than the third. Now, as sharp and smart and as with it as my grandmother still is, I wasn't sure that she would remember this detail, but the very first thing that she said to me when we sat down was something to the effect of, this is right behind where your grandfather and I used to sit. Unsurprisingly, that was the first of many times that I cried that afternoon. Despite COVID-related issues within the Come From Away company as they restarted the tour, the show is still in impeccably good shape. With each passing day, the show's message of simple goodness, compassion, and basic human empathy feels both more necessary and, unfortunately, foreign to us than it ever has before. So the decency displayed in Come From Away becomes more and more impactful every time that I see it. My only reservation about the show was that Marika Aubrey, who plays Beverly, Annette, and others, doesn't have the upper belt that we normally associate with Beverly Bass, first with Jen Colella, and then with some uh, subsequent performers in that role that I've seen. So her Me and the Sky ended up not having the soaring impact that it normally would, but beyond that, the show, the experience, and the company sitting next to me was perfect. The Come From Away National Tour is currently in Louisville, Kentucky through February 20th before it will head to the Cadillac Palace Theater in Chicago, Illinois, the Music Hall at Fair Park in Dallas, Theater Under the Stars in Houston, and then back to Ohio at the Schuster Center in Dayton in early April before heading to Washington, D.C. and others throughout the rest of the year. So I recently watched the film version of Small Engine Repair, which is based on a play by John Polano. Um, he premiered that here in Los Angeles at the theater that I work with, the Rogue Machine Theater, back in 2011. And then they did a small off-Broadway run in 2013. John Polano uh, is the star of it, Frank, in the Los Angeles cast, the off-Broadway cast, as well as the film, and he also directed the film. John Barenthal, who also originated the role at the theater here in L.A., also is in the film. Shea Wiggum is also in the film. And I don't want to say too much because if you know the writing of John Polano, which many of you don't, but you will, is that you never know where it's going. And what seems to be a simple plot at first is going to places that you don't expect. And... The, the film is about three childhood friends who seem to have a casual reunion, but it's so much more than that. And unfortunately, I can't give anything else away. <laughs> but I will say that they did an admirable job filming the play. I know sometimes when you make movies out of plays, halfway through, you're like, yeah, this would be better as a play. And I'm not going to mention any names, but some of them are nominated for Oscars. But... I think they did an admirable job. I think the um, things they added in for, you know, to filler for like adding in exterior scenes. So it's not all in one place like it is in the play. It worked. Um, I do definitely think it's it's a, a great stage show and I'm excited for you to see it and then excited for you to read it. But I do hope that you watch it first. But uh, it's on Hulu. It's a good watch. Uh, John Polano is a great writer. And he's also a really good actor. His wife and daughter are also in the film who also help out at the theater. His wife, Jennifer, has starred in many shows at Rogue Machine. And it's a really good story. And it's really well written. And the performances are great. But it's the writing that really is impressive. And he has, he has some other plays that I think you'll like, Matt, that I'll recommend to you afterwards. But like Becca that we talked, Becca Brunstetter that we talked about in the last segment, I think John Polano is going to be one of those that we're all talking about in the next decade. Were you involved with the Rogue Machine run of that show, or did that did you miss that one either before or after you were working on stuff there? I did miss it. I was still in the Peace Corps at that time. I worked on his second show, Lost Girls, starring Jonathan Lipnicki. 
<laughs> oh, oh yeah. uh, the human head yes, weighs yes, 10 pounds. Yeah. But, but now he's a grown up and he's a wonderful, sweet, sweet man. And um, also a- another John Polano play where you think it's about one thing and it's about something else. So I was not involved with the original production, but uh, it's nice to see that Barenthal came back and yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always excited when Shea Wiggum shows up and things. I don't know Shea Wiggum. I know John Barenthal. Uh, he played the Punisher in the Netflix Marvel shows and apparently might be returning to that role for a Hulu series. But I don't know Shea Wiggum. Did you watch the um, HBO reboot of Perry Mason? I have not watched it yet with uh, one of our favorites, Matthew Reese, right? Yes. Well, he's very good in that. He was also in Fargo, Boardwalk Empire. True. De- he was in the first season of True Detective, and he's been in a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And I, I recognize him, but I, I didn't know him by name. So that's good to know. He's a great, great character actor, and he's really good in this role. Like, he's really good in this role. That's all I'll say. But on Hulu, available to stream, um, just a recommendation for someone who needs a new movie to watch. Matt, do you want to talk about some reviews and a little review roundup? Yeah, let's start with the reviews for AD16. You heard uh, Cinco Paul talk about the reviews and them being pretty strong, especially from Peter Marks of the Washington Post. So that seems like as good a place as any to begin. Peter Marks wrote, quote, Take it as gospel. AD 16, the musical making its world premiere at Olney Theater Center, is a holy rock and rolling pleasure. If this affectionately irreverent tale of a teenage Mary Magdalene falling for a dreamy, nerdy Jesus doesn't convert you to musical theater worship, well, that's between you and your maker. The makers of the musical, book writer Becca Brunstetter and composer-lyricist Cinco Paul, have done us all a timely solid, whipping up a smart, family-friendly confection. With irresistible central performances by Phoenix Best as the indefatigable Mary and Ben Fankhauser as a Jesus so sincere he'd be prom king by acclamation, AD 16 strums guitar strings of broad audience appeal. As to the show's future in the big time, I'd say with the utmost confidence that it has a prayer. Obviously, Senko mentioned the fact that he is not shy about the fact that he wants to see this show make it to Broadway. So uh, it sounds like with a review from one of not only one of Washington, D.C.'s, but the country's uh, most prolific critics, that this could be uh, much more in the works than most shows have out of town tryouts. Before we get into one more review roundup, I do want to mention that the show that we did reviews for in the last episode, Swept Away at Berkeley Rep, has extended for a third and final time. The show will now run through March 13th. And finally, Jen, I wanted to hit one more national tour in talking about reviews. Uh, This is a show I saw twice on Broadway, and I'm sure that you, like me, watched the documentary about them uh, on Hulu. This is the national tour of Freestyle Love Supreme. Now, obviously... One of the joys of the Broadway version of this is that you never know who is going to show up for every given performance. But um, in the national tour, the cast is set a little bit more because of the obvious requirements of touring a show. So you'll hear a little bit about that cast in these reviews. But just as I thought when it was on Broadway, this show is absolutely entertaining everyone wherever it goes. It officially opened in San Francisco, so let's start with uh, Karen D'Souza from the Mercury Daily News, who wrote, quote, The real world may be a dark place right now, but this Broadway hit is a light-hearted jam that's all about capturing the poetry of every day. Created by college buddies Lin-Manuel Miranda, Anthony Venezial, and Tommy Kale, who also directs, this feel-good lark revels in the messiness, unpredictability, and magic of rap and life. Lily Janiak, who we also included in the Swept Away reviews, uh, writing for Datebook, said, quote, But the show's breakout star is Anissa Folds, a.k.a. Young Anise, whose gale force pipes and sweeping vocal range would be plenty of artistry on their own. To her record deal-ready singing, she adds acute comic judgment, landing one of the opening night's first big jokes. From an audience member's suggested pet peeve of a vegan girlfriend, she wondered if a particular sexual act 
would fall within the woman's dietary restrictions. I can only imagine what the hell she's talking about there, Jen. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but Young Niece, former uh, Broadway radio guest, is fantastic. She was in the show all both times that I saw Freestyle Love Supreme on Broadway, and she is uh, incredible. So um, the national tour of Freestyle Love Supreme is currently playing uh, Seattle Rep and in Seattle uh, through March 13th. Then it will head across the country to the Colonial Theater in Boston, Massachusetts, where it will play from the 18th of March through April 2nd. Then it will have a three-week run back on the other side of the country at the Portland Center Stage in Portland, Oregon, before it again traverses the country. Man, whoever planned this tour was not doing them any favors uh, because they'll play Washington, D.C.'s Eisenhower Theater for a week in May before heading down to San Antonio, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, Detroit, Michigan, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then back to San Diego and Los Angeles through the summer. You saw it on Broadway, correct? I did, yeah, twice. Both pre-shutdown and post-shutdown. I wish that was one I had gotten to see, but maybe it'll stop here in L.A. at some point. Yeah, it'll be at the Pasadena Playhouse uh, in July and August, so hopefully... Oh, that's a good that's a good venue for that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not hitting necessarily a lot of the big touring houses, because it wouldn't be appropriate in a 2,700-seat theater like the Dr. Phillips Center here in Orlando, but... It is very appropriate for places like the Old Globe in San Diego, where it's playing um, Seattle Rep, where it is now in the Pasadena Playhouse. So uh, I hope you get a chance to see it July 12th through August 7th later this year. Well, thank you for joining us on This Week in Theater. You can follow Broadway Radio at Broadway Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter at Eponine Q and Matt at BWW Matt. As always, you can reach out to us with suggestions for regional theater productions, and we shall see you next time. <laughs>